Chapter twenty two. Chapter twenty three. Chapter twenty four. Smith in the City. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more details, please see LibriVox.blogsome.com. Today's reading by Chris Gorringe. Smith in the City by P. G. Woodhouse. Chapter twenty two. And take steps. On returning to the bank, Mike found Mr. Waller in the grip of a peculiarly varied set of mixed feelings. Shortly after Mike's departure for the Mecca, the cashier had been summoned once more into the presence, and had there been informed that, as apparently he had not been directly responsible for the gross piece of carelessness by which the bank had suffered so considerable a loss, here Sir John puffed out his cheeks. Like a meditative toad, the matter, as far as he was concerned, was at an end. On the other hand, here Mr. Waller was hauled over the coals for incredible rashness in allowing a mere junior subordinate to handle important tasks, like the paying out of money, and so on, till he felt raw all over. However, it was not dismissal; that was the great thing. And his principal sensation was one of relief. Mingled with the relief was sympathy for Mike, gratitude to him for having given himself up so promptly, and a curiously dazed sensation, as if somebody had been hitting him on the head with a bolster. All of which emotions, taken simultaneously, had the effect of rendering him completely dumb when he saw Mike. He felt that he did not know what to say to him, and as Mike, for his part, simply wanted to be let alone and not compelled to talk, conversation was at something of a standstill in the cash department. After five minutes, it occurred to Mr. Waller that perhaps the best plan would be to interview Smith. Smith would know exactly how matters stood. He could not ask Mike point blank whether he had been dismissed. But there was the probability that Smith had been informed, and would pass on the information. Smith received the cashier with dignified kindliness. "Oh,、uh, Smith," said Mr. Waller, "I wanted just to ask you about Jackson." Smith bowed his head gravely. "Exactly," he said, "Comrade Jackson." I think I may say that you have come to the right man. Comrade Jackson has placed himself in my hands, and I am dealing with his case. A somewhat tricky business, but I shall see him through. Has he? Mr. Waller hesitated. You were saying, said Smith. Does Mr. Bickersdyke intend to dismiss him? At present, admitted Smith. There is some idea of that description floating, nebulously, as it were, in Comrade Bickersdyke's mind. Indeed, from what I gather from my client, the push was actually administered in so many words. But tush, and possibly bar, we know what happens on these occasions, do we not? You and I are students of human nature, and we know that a man of Comrade Bickersdyke's warm-hearted type. Is apt to say in the heat of the moment a great deal more than he really means. Men of his impulsive character cannot help expressing themselves 
in times of stress, with a certain generous strength, which those who do not understand them are inclined to take a little too seriously. I shall have a chat with Comrade Bickersdyke at the conclusion of the day's work, and I have no doubt that we shall both laugh heartily over this little episode. Mr. Waller pulled at his beard, with an expression on his face that seemed to suggest that he was not quite so confident on this point. He was about to put his doubts into words when Mr. Rossiter appeared, and Smith, murmuring something about duty, turned again to his ledger. The cashier drifted back to his own department. It was one of Smith's theories of life, which he was accustomed to propound to Mike in the small hours of the morning with his feet on the mantelpiece, that the secret of success lay in taking advantage of one's occasional slices of luck, in seizing, as it were, the happy moment. When Mike, who had had the passage to write out ten times at Rickon on one occasion as an imposition, reminded him that Shakespeare had once said something about there being a tide in the affairs of men, which taken out the flood, etc., Smith had acknowledged with an easy grace that possibly Shakespeare had got on to it first, and that it was but one more proof of how often great minds thought alike. Though waiving his claim to the copyright of the maxim, he nevertheless had a high opinion of it, and frequently acted upon it in the conduct of his own life. Thus, when approaching the senior conservative club at five o'clock, with the idea of finding Mr. Bickersdyke there, he observed his quarry, entering the Turkish baths, which stand some twenty yards from the club's front door, he acted on his maxim, and decided, instead of waiting for the manager to finish his bath before approaching him on the subject of Mike, to corner him in the baths themselves. He gave Mr. Bickersdyke five minutes' start. Then, reckoning that by that time he would probably have settled down, he pushed open the door and went in himself. And, having paid his money and left his boots with the boy at the threshold, he was rewarded by the sight of the manager emerging from a box at the far end of the room, clad in the mottled towel which the bather, irrespective of his personal taste in dress, is obliged to wear in a Turkish bath. Smith made for the same box. Mr. Bickersdyke's clothes lay at the head of one of the sofas, but nobody else had staked out a claim. Smith took possession of the sofa next to the manager's, then, humming lightly, he undressed and made his way downstairs to the hot rooms. He rather fancied himself in towels. There was something about them which seemed to suit his figure. They gave him, he thought, rather a debonair look. He paused for a moment before the looking-glass to examine himself with approval, then pushed open the door of the hot rooms and went in. Chapter 23 Mr. Bickersdyke Makes a Concession Mr. Bickersdyke was reclining in an easy chair in the first room, staring before him in the boiled fish manner customary in a Turkish bath. Smith dropped into the next seat with a cheery, Good evening. The manager started as if some firm hand 
had driven a bridle into him. He looked at Smith with what was intended to be a dignified stare, but dignity is hard to achieve in a couple of party-coloured towels. The stare did not differ, to any great extent, from the conventional boiled fish look alluded to above. Smith settled himself comfortably in his chair. "'Fancy finding you here,' he said pleasantly. "'We always seem to be meeting. "'To me,' he added, with a reassuring smile, "'it is a great pleasure, a very great pleasure indeed. "'We see too little of each other during office hours. "'Not that one must grumble at that. "'Work before everything. "'You have your duties, I mine. "'It is merely unfortunate.' that those duties are not such as to enable us to toil side by side, encouraging each other with word and gesture. However, it is idle to repine. We must make the most of these chance meetings when the work of the day is done. Mr. Bickersdyke heaved himself up from his chair and took another at the opposite end of the room. Smith joined him. "'There's something pleasantly mysterious to my mind,' said he chattily, in a Turkish bath. "'It seems to take one out of the hurry and bustle of the everyday world. "'It is a quiet backwater in the rushing river of life. "'I like to sit and think in a Turkish bath. "'Except, of course, when I have a congenial companion to talk to. "'As now. "'To me,' Mr. Bickersdyke rose and went into the next room. "'To me,' continued Smith, again following and seating himself beside the manager, "'there is, too, something eerie in these places. "'There is a certain sinister air about the attendants. "'They glide rather than walk. "'They say little. "'Who knows what they may be planning and plotting? "'That's drip, drip again.' It may be merely water, but how are we to know that it is not blood? It would seem so easy to do away with a man in a Turkish bath. Nobody has seen him come in. Nobody can trace him if he disappears. These are uncomfortable thoughts, Mr. Bickersdyke. Mr. Bickersdyke seemed to think them so. He rose again and returned to the first room. "'I have made you restless,' said Smith, in a voice of self-reproach, when he had settled himself once more by the manager's side. "'I am sorry. I will not pursue the subject. Indeed, I believe that my fears are unnecessary. The statistics show, I understand, that large numbers of men emerge in safety every year from Turkish baths. There was another matter of which I wished to speak to you.' It is a somewhat delicate matter, and I am only encouraged to mention it to you by the fact that you are so close a friend of my father's. Mr. Bickersdyke had picked up an early edition of an evening paper, left on the table at his side by a previous bather, and was to all appearances engrossed in it. Smith, however, not discouraged, proceeded to touch upon the matter of Mike. There was, he said, some little friction, I hear, in the office today in connection with a cheque. The evening paper hid the manager's expressive face. 
but from the fact that the hands holding it tightened their grip, Smith deduced that Mr Bickersdyke's attention was not wholly concentrated on the city news. Moreover, his toes wriggled. And when a man's toes wriggle, he is interested in what you are saying. All these petty breezes, continued Smith sympathetically, must be very trying to a man in your position, a man who wishes to be left alone, in order to devote his entire thought to the niceties of the higher finance. It is as if Napoleon, while planning out some intricate scheme of campaign, were to be called upon in the midst of his meditations to bully a private for not cleaning his buttons. Naturally, you were annoyed. Your giant brain, wrenched temporarily from its proper groove, expended its force in one tremendous reprimand of Comrade Jackson. It was as if one had diverted some terrific electric current, which should have been controlling a vast system of machinery, and turned it on to annihilate a black beetle. In the present case, of course, the result is as might have been expected. Comrade Jackson, not realising the position of affairs, went away with the absurd idea that all was over, that you meant all you said. Briefly, that his number was up. I assured him that he was mistaken, but no, he persisted in declaring that all was over, that you had dismissed him from the bank. Mr. Bickersdyke lowered the paper and glared bulbously at the old Etonian. Mr. Jackson is perfectly right, he snapped. Of course I dismissed him. Yes, yes, said Smith. I have no doubt that at the moment you did work the rapid push. What I am endeavouring to point out is that Comrade Jackson is under the impression that the edict is permanent, that he can hope for no reprieve. Nor can he. You don't mean... I mean what I say. Ah, I quite understand, said Smith, as one who sees that he must make allowances. The incident is too recent. The storm has not yet had time to expend itself. You have not had leisure to think the matter over coolly. It is hard, of course, to be cool in a Turkish bath. Your ganglions are still vibrating. Later, perhaps, once and for all growled Mr. Bickersdyke. The thing is ended. Mr. Jackson will leave the bank at the end of the month. We have no room for fools in the office. You surprise me, said Smith. I should not have thought that the standard of intelligence in the bank was extremely high. With the exception of our two selves, I think that there are hardly any men of real intelligence on the staff. And Conway Jackson is improving every day. Being, as he is, under my constant supervision, he is rapidly developing a stranglehold on his duties, which I have no wish to discuss the matter any further. No, no, quite so, quite so. Not another word. I am dumb. There are limits, you see, to the uses of impertinence, Mr. Smith. Smith started. You are not suggesting. You do not mean that I... I have no more to say. I shall be glad if you will allow me to read my paper. Smith waved a damp hand. I should be the last man, he said stiffly, to force my conversation on another. 
I was under the impression that you enjoyed these little chats as keenly as I did. If I was wrong... He relapsed into a wounded silence. Mr Bickersdyke resumed his perusal of the evening paper, and presently, laying it down, rose and made his way to the room where muscular attendants were in waiting to perform that blend of jiu-jitsu and catch-as-catch-can which is the most valuable and at the same time most painful part of a Turkish bath. It was not till he was resting on his sofa, swathed from head to foot in a sheet and smoking a cigarette, that he realised that Smith was sharing his compartment. He made the unpleasant discovery just as he had finished his first cigarette and lighted his second. He was blowing out the match when Smith, accompanied by an attendant, appeared in the doorway and proceeded to occupy the next sofa to himself. All that feeling of dreamy peace, which is the reward one receives for allowing oneself to be melted like wax and kneaded like bread, left him instantly. He felt hot and annoyed. To escape was out of the question. Once one had been scientifically wrapped up by the attendant and placed on one's sofa, one is a fixture. He lay scowling at the ceiling, resolved to combat all attempt at conversation with a stony silence. Smith, however, did not seem to desire conversation. He lay on his sofa motionless for a quarter of an hour, then reached out for a large book which lay on the table and began to read. When he did speak, he seemed to be speaking to himself. Every now and then he would murmur a few words, sometimes a single name. In spite of himself, Mr. Bickersdyke found himself listening. At first the murmurs conveyed nothing to him, then suddenly a name caught his ear. Strowther was the name, and somehow it suggested something to him. He could not say precisely what. It seemed to touch some chord of memory. He knew no one of the name of Strowther. He was sure of that. And yet it was curiously familiar. An unusual name, too. He could not help feeling that at one time he must have known it quite well. Mr. Strowther, murmured Smith, said that the honourable gentleman's remarks would have been nothing short of treason if they had not been so obviously the mere babblings of an irresponsible lunatic. Cries of order, order, and a voice, sit down, fathead! For just one moment, Mr. Bickersdyke's memory poised motionless, like a hawk about to swoop. Then it darted at the mark. Everything came to him in a flash. The hands of the clock whizzed back. He was no longer Mr. John Bickersdyke, manager of the London branch of the New Asiatic Bank, lying on a sofa in the Cumberland Street Turkish baths. He was Jack Bickersdyke, clerk in the employ of Messrs. Norton and Biggleswade, standing on a chair and shouting, Order! Order! in the Masonic room of the Red Lion at Tulls Hill. While the members of the Tulls Hill Parliament, divided into two camps, yelled at one another, and young Tom Barlow, in his official capacity as Mr. Speaker, waved his arms dumbly and banged the table with his mallet in his efforts to restore calm. He remembered the whole affair as if it had happened yesterday. 
It had been a speech of his own which had called forth the above expression of opinion from Strowther. He remembered Strowther now, a pale, spectacled clerk in Baxter and Abraham's, an inveterate upholder of the throne, the House of Lords, and all constituted authority. Strowther had objected to the socialistic sentiments of his speech in connection with the budget, and there had been a disturbance unparalleled even in the Tulls Hill Parliament, where disturbances were frequent and loud. Smith looked across at him with a bright smile. They report you verbatim, he said, and rightly, a more able speech I have seldom read. I like the bit where you call the royal family bloodsuckers. Even then, it seems you knew how to express yourself fluently and well. Mr. Bickersdyke sat up. The hands of the clock had moved again, and he was back in what Smith had called the live, vivid present. "'What have you got there?' he demanded. "'It is a record,' said Smith, "'of the meeting of an institution called the Tulls Hill Parliament. "'A bright, chatty little institution, too, "'if one may judge by these reports. "'You in particular, if I may say so, appear to have let yourself go with refreshing vim. Your political views have changed a great deal since those days, have they not? It is extremely interesting, a most fascinating study for political students. When I send these speeches of yours to the clavian, Mr. Bickersdyke bounded on his sofa. What? he cried. I was saying, said Smith, that the clavian will probably make a most interesting comparison between these speeches and those you have been making at Kenningford. I... I... I forbid you to make any mention of these speeches. Smith hesitated. It would be great fun, seeing what the papers said, he protested. Great fun? It is true, mused Smith, that in a measure it would dish you at the election. From what I saw of those light-hearted lads at Kenningford the other night, I should say they would be so amused that they would only just have enough strength left to stagger to the poll and vote for your opponent. Mr. Bickersdyke broke out into a cold perspiration. I forbid you to send those speeches to the papers, he cried. Smith reflected. You see, he said at last, it's like this. The departure of Comrade Jackson, my confidential secretary and adviser, is certain to plunge me into a state of the deepest gloom. The only way I can see at present by which I can ensure even a momentary lightening of the inky cloud is the sending of these speeches to some bright paper like the Clarion. I feel certain that their comments would ring, at any rate, a sad, sweet smile from me. Possibly even a hearty laugh. I must, therefore, look on these very able speeches of yours in something of the light of an antidote. They will stand between me and black depression. Without them, I am in the cart. With them, I may possibly buoy myself up. Mr. Bickersdyke shifted uneasily on his sofa. He glared at the floor. Then he eyed the ceiling as if it were a personal enemy of his. Finally, he looked at Smith. Smith's eyes were closed in peaceful meditation. 
"'Very well,' he said at last. "'Jackson shall stop.' Smith came out of his thoughts with a start. "'Are you of observing?' he said. "'I shall not dismiss Jackson,' said Mr. Bickersdyke. Smith smiled winningly. "'Just as I had hoped,' he said. "'Your very justifiable anger melts before reflection. "'The storm subsides, and you are at leisure to examine the matter dispassionately. "'Doubts begin to creep in. "'Possibly you say to yourself, "'I have been too hasty, too harsh. "'Justice must be tempered with mercy. "'I have caught Comrade Jackson bending,' you add, still to yourself.' But shall I press home my advantage too ruthlessly? No, you cry, I will abstain. And I applaud your action. I like to see this spirit of gentle toleration. It is bracing and comforting. As for these excellent speeches, he added, I shall, of course, no longer have any need of their consolation. I can lay them aside. The sunlight can now enter and illumine my life through more ordinary channels. The cry goes round, Smith is himself again. Mr Bickersdyke said nothing, unless a snort of fury may be counted as anything. Chapter 24 The Spirit of Unrest During the following fortnight, two things happened which materially altered Mike's position in the bank. The first was that Mr Bickersdyke was elected a Member of Parliament. He got in by a small majority amidst scenes of disorder of a nature unusual even in Kenningford. Smith, who went down on the polling day to inspect the revels and came back with his hat smashed in, reported that, as far as he could see, the elects of Kenningford seemed to be in just that state of happy intoxication which might make them vote for Mr Bickersdyke by mistake. Also, it had been discovered on the eve of the poll that the bank manager's opponent, in his youth, had been educated at a school in Germany and had subsequently spent two years at Heidelberg University. These damaging revelations were having a marked effect on the warm-hearted patriots of Kenningford, who were now referring to the candidate in thick but earnest tones as the German spy. So that, taking everything into consideration, said Smith, summing up, I fancy that Comrade Bickersdyke is home. And the papers next day proved that he was right. A hundred and fifty-seven, said Smith, as he read his paper at breakfast, not what one would call a slashing victory. It is fortunate for Comrade Bickersdyke, I think, that I did not send those very able speeches of his to the clarion. Till now, Mike had been completely at a loss to understand why the manager had sent for him on the morning following the scene about the cheque, and informed him that he had reconsidered his decision to dismiss him. Mike could not help feeling that there was more in the matter than met the eye. Mr. Bickersdyke had not spoken as if it gave him any pleasure to reprieve him. On the contrary, his manner was distinctly brusque. Mike was thoroughly puzzled. To Smith's statement, that he had talked the matter over quietly with the manager and brought things to a satisfactory conclusion, he had paid little attention. 
but now he began to see light. "'Great Scott, Smith,' he said. "'Did you tell him you'd send those speeches to the papers if he sacked me?' Smith looked at him through his eyeglass and helped himself to another piece of toast. "'I am unable,' he said, "'to recall at this moment the exact terms "'of the very pleasant conversation I had with Comrade Bickersdyke "'on the occasion of our chance meeting in the Turkish bath that afternoon. "'But thinking things over quietly now that I have had more leisure, "'I cannot help feeling that he may possibly have read some such intention into my words. "'You know how it is in these little chats, Comrade Jackson. "'One leaps to conclusions.' Some casual word I happened to drop may have given him the idea you mention. At this distance of time it is impossible to say with any certainty. Suffice it that all has ended well. He did reconsider his resolve. I shall be only too happy if it turns out that the seed of the alteration in his views was sown by some careless word of mine. Perhaps we shall never know. Mike was beginning to mumble some awkward words of thanks when Smith resumed his discourse. Be that as it may, however, he said, we cannot but perceive that Comrade Bickersdyke's election has altered our position to some extent. As you have pointed out, he may have been influenced in this recent affair by some chance remark of mine about those speeches. Now, however, they will cease to be of any value. Now that he is elected, he has nothing to lose by their publication. I mention this by way of indicating that it is possible that, if another painful episode occurs, he may be more ruthless. I see what you mean, said Mike. If he catches me on the hop again, he'll simply go ahead and sack me. That, said Smith, is more or less the position of affairs. The other event which altered Mike's life at the bank was his removal from Mr. Waller's department to the fixed deposits. The work in the fixed deposits was less pleasant, and Mr. Gregory, the head of the department, was not of Mr. Waller's type. Mr. Gregory, before joining the home staff of the new Asiatic bank, had spent a number of years with a firm in the Far East, where he had acquired a liver and a habit of addressing those under him in a way that suggested the mate of a tramp steamer. Even on the days when his liver was not troubling him, he was truculent. And when, as usually happened, it did trouble him, he was a perfect fountain of abuse. Mike and he hated each other from the first. The work in the fixed deposit was not really difficult when you got the hang of it, but there was a certain amount of confusion in it to a beginner, and Mike, in commercial matters, was as raw a beginner as ever began. In the two other departments through which he had passed, he had done tolerably well. As regarded his work in the postage department, stamping letters and taking them down to the post office was just about his form. It was the sort of work on which he could really get a grip. And in the cash department, Mr. Waller's mild patience had helped him through. But with Mr. Gregory it was different. Mike hated being shouted at. It confused him. And Mr. Gregory invariably shouted. He always spoke as if he was competing against a high wind. With Mike he shouted more than usual. 
On his side, it must be admitted that Mike was something out of the common run of bank clerks. The whole system of banking was a horrid mystery to him. He did not understand why things were done, or how the various departments depended on and dovetailed into each other. Each department seemed to him something separate and distinct. Why they were all in the same building at all, he never really gathered. He knew that it could not be purely from motives of sociability, in order that the clerks might have each other's company during slack spells. That much he suspected, but beyond that, he was vague. It naturally followed that, after having grown, little by little, under Mr. Waller's easy-going rule to enjoy life at the bank, he now suffered a reaction. Within a day of his arrival in the fixed deposits, he was loathing the place as earnestly as he had loathed it on the first morning. Smith, who had taken his place in the cash department, reported that Mr. Waller was inconsolable at his loss. I do my best to cheer him up, he said, and he smiled bravely every now and then, but when he thinks that I am not looking, his head droops, and that wistful expression comes into his face. The sunshine has gone out of his life. It had just come into Mike's, and more than anything else, was making him restless and discontented. That is to say, it was now late spring. The sun shone cheerfully on the city, and cricket was in the air. And that was the trouble. In the dark days, when everything was fog and slush, Mike had been contented enough to spend his mornings and afternoons in the bank, and go about with Smith at night. Under such conditions, London is the best place in which to be, and the warmth and light of the bank were pleasant. But now things had changed. The place had become a prison. With all the energy of one who had been born and bred in the country, Mike hated having to stay indoors on days when all the air was full of approaching summer. There were mornings when it was almost more than he could do to push open the swing doors and go out of the fresh air into the stuffy atmosphere of the bank. The days passed slowly and the cricket season began. Instead of being a relief, this made matters worse. The little cricket he could get only made him want more. It was as if a starving man had been given a handful of wafer biscuits. If the summer had been wet, he might have been less restless. But as it happened, it was unusually fine. After a week of cold weather, at the beginning of May, a hot spell set in. May passed in a blaze of sunshine. Large scores were made all over the country. Mike's name had been down for the MCC for some years, and he had become a member during his last season at Ricken. Once or twice a week he managed to get up to Lord's for half an hour's practice at the nets, and on Saturday the bank had matches, in which he generally managed to knock the cover off rather ordinary club bowling, but it was not enough for him. June came, and with it even more sunshine. The atmosphere of the bank seemed more oppressive than ever. This is the end of chapter 24 of Smith in the City by P. G. Woodhouse.